earnestly expecting and hoping not only corporate and national flourishing, but the installation of God-ordained godly rulers in all jurisdictions of life. I know I am. All right. To conclude, we are going to hear about the grounds for, the reasons for, the foundation of our hope from the New Testament. And to bring that to us is another man who's about that beach life and you can play volleyball with. But he is the preaching elder here at Branch of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church and has been since 1990. Prior to that, he was a youth pastor for St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. He has also served on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. Paul has a master's well, that's weird to say Paul. Pastor Paul, sorry, Pastor. Paul has a master's in apologetics from Biola University, and he's been an instructor at various high schools and colleges. He has attended no fewer than six seminaries. You hear the ministerial background. Paul has also lived in this South Bay area his entire life. He and his lovely wife have four beautiful children. Please welcome to the stage... Pastor Paul Vigiano. Thank you, Daniel. I feel like I've been here before. <laughs> okay, well, I've been tasked with the foundation of hope in the New Testament. And um, before I begin to talk about that, let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we do pray that we would understand the direction that you have determined to take history and our role in it. We do pray that we would not stray in our hearts and our minds from the very foundation that would cause these things to take place. We do pray that we'd be wise under these things. Bless us, and we pray that in all of these things, your name would be lifted up and glorified. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I remember about 30 years ago, and one of our elders took me aside, and we were talking a bit about end times, you know, and he, he, he approached me almost like a child, and he said, so let me ask you it this way. You've got history, and it's kind of like going up and down, up and down, in terms of things going well, things going poorly, dips in history, apexes in history, you know, and prior to Christ, it's way down here. And he goes, let me ask you a question. And it's almost a question you might ask a Sunday school student. He goes, Jesus comes, he dies, he's resurrected, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Without getting into all the eschatological schemes out there, how do you think that will affect history? Will it get worse? Will it remain the same? Or will it get better? Now, I would submit to you that almost any Sunday school child that you ask that question to would automatically say, it's going to get better. Jesus came, it's going to get better. Well, that started me on a road that has been um, challenged, and you know, there's verses and passages and all these things that kind of go, well, if it's going to get better, then how do I explain all these verses in the Bible? If it's going to get better, how come in my lifetime it's gotten worse and so forth? Other people just seem to not care. There are a whole group of people that when I decided to launch through the Revelation, kind of had this moan, you know, like, 
I've really never been all that interested in end times, you know, and I could see that. It's, you know, it's, it's its own little animal. But let me tell you this. Where you think God is taking us in history will affect your ministry and it will affect your life. If I could compare history to a, to a ship. If you are committed to the proposition that it is God's will for that ship to run into the cliffs, that's what you just read your Bible in such a way that go to, to, to tell you that, look it, it's going to go into the cliffs, then that will affect your ministry. Your ministry becomes one big rescue operation of getting as many people on that ship into heaven and not worried too much about where the ship itself is going to go because you're convinced the ship is going to go under the rocks. You don't worry about the direction of the ship. Or if you have the position that more of my all-millennial friends have, and that is, yeah, it's just going to float around. ship's going to float around, not too concerned about whatever direction it, it's going to go in. It's just going to be fine. And then you still, you don't worry too much about the direction. You minister on the ship. And all these, um, all these are Christian people ministering on the ship. But you're just not too worried about the direction of the ship. Yet, if you believe that it is God's will to bring that ship into safe harbor, then very much part of your ministry is to get the oars out and start paddling. That may not be the center of your ministry, but that's part of your ministry. That's part of your life. Part of your life is going, we should think about taking this boat to a good place. And yet the predominant position today, and you've heard it many times along the lines of, you know, um, if the ship is sinking, why worry about you know, rearranging the deck furniture, or, you know, why paint the rails on the Titanic, or as one other person said, you know, God has called us to be fisher of men, he's not told us to clean the fishbowl, and these types of things. Well, I would submit to you that all those things have been kind of self-fulfilling prophecies in our generation. Now, I've been tasked with going, well, where is our hope in terms of the foundation? And I'm, I'm, I'm pushing this into the eschatological figure, because, because, where you think we're going, where you think we're supposed to end up, is going to affect the way you behave today, right? I mean, it's just kind of basic. If I'm going to head to Santa Barbara, you know, I'm not going to get to Santa Barbara unless I get on the 405 going north. And then I got to get on the 101 going north. So the fact that I want to get there means here it's going to affect things. Same things, in, same in terms of where we think we should go in history as a people, either as a, as a community or as a nation or as the world. Now, all of this is fine and good. Um, hopefully you understand why it is important. But the question really is, where is God taking us? And uh, you could go, well, Pastor Paul, you're naturally an optimistic person, but clearly the Bible teaches that things are going to get worse. So, you know, you're optimist and will die with the culture or something like that. But I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm going to be looking at our hope as it relates to the New Testament. And really, when we talk about the New Testament, we're talking about the New Covenant, as Eddie just was talking about. And really, when we talk about the New Covenant, we're talking about Christ himself and when we're talking about Christ himself, what we're really talking about is the resurrection. I mean, the foundation, in case anybody asks you and somebody says, what did Pastor Paul said, say our foundation for hope was in the New Testament? The answer is the cross of Christ. That's the foundation for our hope, just so that we're not unclear. But what will the cross have in terms of an effect upon the world? 
Now, in order for us to establish that, we really need to go back into the Old Testament a little bit. And I'm aware of my limited amount of time here, even though I didn't start my watch. Now I've started it. So now whatever I just said isn't going to count in terms of my time. What does the Bible say in terms of what is going to happen to this world? We all agree on eternity, right? We know, you know, wherever we're at eschatologically, we're all, we all agree that heaven is a good place and that by the cross of Christ we're going to get there. But in the meantime, in that journey, what does the Bible teach in terms of what's going to happen in this world as a result of the cross of Christ? I mean, we could compare it to our own personal lives. We've, if we have called upon the name of the Lord, we know that our final destination is glory. But that doesn't mean that in your life it doesn't matter what you do, right? We all recognize that as a justified person, I need to lead a sanctified life. So even though we recognize that in the end, we're all going to be, if we're, if we're believers in the, in, the, in the cross of Christ, we're all going to end up at the same place. But what happens in the meantime? And what does the Bible teach? Well, in the very beginning, we all know the story, right? God said, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but not that one. And on the day you eat of that one, you should surely die. And Adam ate, and he died, and the curse entered. And then right away, we see the promise. Okay, so let's start with that promise. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, slide 1. So the Lord said to the serpent, so this is God talking to the serpent. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, that's the first proclamation of the gospel we see in the scriptures. And that is there is the enemy of God's people, but the seed of the woman will defeat the enemy of God's people. So the question is, what does that look like? Like, what, what are, what's the full-orbed picture of the reversal of what happened as a result of Adam's sin? Can you imagine being there when Adam and Eve ate and darkness entered in, and all of a sudden the fangs showed up, the, the nightmare of paradise turning in to this horror film? Can you imagine if we were there watching it? How it affected the creation itself. Not just them, it affected creation. Matter of fact, in Romans it says the creation groans to be renewed. So God makes this promise. Now how reversed is all that going to be as a result of the seed of the woman? Is he going to take care of some of it? Is he going to take care of all of it? What is our expectation? Well, I think I would be remiss in my duty if I didn't begin here by explaining to you the predominant view today in its full feature. In other words, you know, I, as a, you know, what you call a post-millennialist, um, I'm very much part of mon the minority today in our culture. Not historically, but today. But there is a position that is the flavor of the day. They have won the hour. And by the hour, I mean about the last 100, 150 years. And it started with a guy named John Nelson Darby in the early 1800s. And it became very popular. The view that you're all familiar with. The view that they make movies about. The view that they write books about. 
millions and millions of best-selling books. Became popular in the late 1800s with a guy named C.I. Schofield in his C.I. Schofield Reference Bible, where it really became popularized. And then after Schofield, there was a guy named Lewis Berry Chafer who started Dallas Seminary. And out of Dallas Seminary, which is probably the most influential seminary in America, we see some of the things that I'm about to read to you. Now I say, we're going to look at these quotes, and I think it should be shocking to you if you've been at all catechized in terms of, like, orthodoxy. Um, it is not some type of side understanding, some type of collateral view that Jesus has three offices. Everybody know what those offices are? Yeah, prophet, priest, and king. Friends, that's a non-negotiable in terms of the Christian faith, that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. When is he prophet, priest, and king? Well, now he's prophet, priest, and king. He, he, um, these offices are not something that are going to happen in the future. They're, they are his current offices, that he is prophet, priest, and king. But Lewis Berry Chafer, who st- again started Dallas Seminary, is unequivocal about this, and I quote him that Jesus, quote, is now serving as priest and not as king. I mean, I, I feel like I feel like at that point, this discussion is over. When, when, when your eschatology brings you to the conclusion that Jesus is currently not king of kings, this discussion, in my mind, if I'm sitting here, I'm like, this discussion is either over or you better come up with something that is a, a radical shift in the history of Christian orthodoxy. The late president of Dallas Seminary, John Walford, he makes this comment, slide two. His, that is Jesus's, fulfillment of the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know where that's from, right? Revelation. John refers to Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Walbert says, this is future, to be achieved after his victory over the beast and the false prophet, Revelation 19. Jesus has the right to rule, though he is not exercising this right over the kings of the earth now. John John does not say in the Revelation that Jesus will become the ruler of the kings of the earth. You don't have to be a grammatical scholar to read John when he says that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And there's not a hint anywhere in there that he's decided not to exercise that rule now. That is an imposition upon the text. Just so you understand that there are implications in terms of orthodoxy in the view that is the predominant view today in terms of the kingship of Christ. Is he or is he not the king of kings? Is he or is he not the Lord of lords? If you were here in my date, in my date, in my debate, and we didn't date, it was just a debate, just in case anybody wants to take a bite out of that. 
um, I asked the gentleman I was debating, I go, is Jesus currently king of kings? And I don't know if you remember this, but he just would He says, well, he started comparing it to an, to an escrow. Well, it's an escrow and all this stuff. I'm like, but you're really doing a lot of tap dancing around this question. If he is king of kings, if he is currently lord of lords, that position should be rejected. And yet it's the predominant position in the West today. Paul writes that after the resurrection, and if you were to ask me, can you pick a, can you pick a passage that really gives us the foundation of the eschatological hope in terms of the world in which we live. I would say this is one of them. We see it in Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, that after the resurrection, Christ was at the Father's, quote, right hand in the heavenly places, right? So he ascends, he ascends. where? To the Father's right hand. We can talk a lot about what it means to be at the Father's right hand, you know, this idea of the right hand, the position of kingship, the position of authority, and so forth. But we don't have to speculate. What does that mean, that he's at the Father's right hand? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Now, it almost feels like the Apostle Paul is making a point, right? How many ways are you going to say this? But then somebody might go, well, yeah, but that's after the second coming. That's in the future millennium. Oh, wait a minute. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And we, we, we can't get into what those ages mean. But the Apostle Paul was living in his current age. And Jesus, because of the resurrection, had all power and rule and authority and dominion over every name that is named, over all principalities in that age and the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So we see this, uh, this preeminence that the church has in the heart of Christ and the heart of the Father. It, it is, if there's cultural change, it starts with the church. It is the church that is to be the light bearer. It is the church that is to proclaim these things. And it begins to bleed out into the culture where the church has influence which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Speaking of the cross, Paul writes, slide four, that Jesus, this is in Colossians 2.15, disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And the antecedent to the it is the cross. In the cross... You ask, what is the foundation for our hope in terms of the eschatological optimism that we should have in the world? It's the cross of Christ. It is the cross of Christ. Jesus is not going to become king. He is king. I mean, it, it seems so obvious. You wonder why you have to say it. These, these words should carry both comfort and, and, and at the same time, call us to a task, among other things, if I can just go back to my metaphor, that we are called 
to get our paddles out in terms of the direction of the ship and seek to bring that ship into safe harbor. Now, this goes beyond what this particular conference can do, but how would that, what would that look like? Well, there's all sorts of things that that looks like. You know, I mean, if I were to exaggerate, you know, I'd say things like, you know, I want our young people to become lawyers and legislators and politicians. I want our young people to think about being, you know, writers, put together books. I want our young people to be producers, movies. I mean, in the big picture, those types of things. But at very least, even if you're a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, you're doing all things to the glory of God for eternity and for the culture in which you live. You are to honor Christ by the very way you live your life. Whether you're, not, whether you're going to be a Steven Spielberg or whether you're the guy that I called to work in my backyard and you decided not to show up. All these things either bring honor or reproach to the name of Christ. All these things take the culture in a certain direction. And we shouldn't think that it doesn't matter or that God has no purpose for it. I mean, there are a a tome of passages in the Old Testament, and I'm going to read one or two of them, that talk about how the world will be affected as a result of God keeping his promise of sending the Messiah. I mean, first and foremost, no doubt. It is salvific. I mean, it is the idea. It's, it has to do with him saving us. And if we don't believe that, then this is not an argument amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a, that'd be a different conference. But this is a discussion among brothers and sisters in Christ. But when you read those Old Testament prophecies about how the world will be affected, about the coming of the Messiah and God keeping his promise, those promises are global. They affect the entire world in every conceivable way, as that great Christmas hymn says, as far as the curse is found. When I painted that picture about being there when they ate and everything turned black, and you're going, okay, God's now made a promise. What, that, what is that going to look like? It's going to make it all clean. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be fixed. It's going to be restored. Paradise Restored is what will take place. Well, I do believe that this has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, you behave based upon the way you think. And if, and if the theologians, who are the most influential in your culture, have convinced you that things are supposed to get worse, and I've used this illustration before as a coach, if, 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 um, if I convince my team that we're going to lose this game before we walk out onto the court, we're probably going to lose that game. Now, I'm not, I don't want to get all psychological and Vince Lombardi on you, but you all understand that. Not only are they going, well, I guess we can't win, but I'm, but I'm going, no, no, it is written in stone that we're going to lose, period. And you can't change that. All you can really do is hope to have a good play here or there while we end up you know, going into the loser's bracket. Well, you might go, well, Pastor Paul, I think you're overstating it. I don't think I am. In 1918, there was a book that came out called Dispensational Truth. The subtitle was The Greatest Book on Dispensational Truth in the World. 
was actually says that on the book jacket. It was written by a guy named Clarence Larkin. I still have it. You can still buy it. It's in, still in bookstores. It's got all sorts of charts. I mean, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating book. But on page 77 and a half on that book, there is a statement I'm going to read to you. Now, again, this is not, this is not you know, some little minority view that is in the corner that I'm grabbing and I'm going, well, here is, you know, straw man. I'm doing a straw man. I'm finding the worst possible little statement made by some obscure person, and I'm going to make that their position. No, this book was the book that everybody was reading. It's still in print 100 years later. And here's what caught my attention as I was thumbing through it. Right across the top, of this big chart reads the failure of Christianity. Wouldn't that get your attention? The failure of Christianity. Slide five. And this is what he writes. It is evident that there are more than a hundred times as many persons born into the world each year as there are persons newborn. You understand what he's kind of saying there? He's like there are a lot of people being born, and only less than one in a hundred of them are being born again, is kind of his math here. Right? So the ungodly are really winning this race, because they're coming in and they're beating us 99 to 1 or something like that. And there is this conclusion. And that thus far, Christianity as a world-converting power is a Failure. All of which proves this guy needs to take Ken Sample's logic class on what needs to happen in order for you to prove something. All of which proves that if after 1,900 years of gospel preaching, the world is not converted, it is not God's purpose to convert the world by the preaching of the gospel in this age I mean, let, let that sink in. It is not God's purpose by the preaching of the gospel to convert the world. That's not what God's about. But simply to gather out an elect body, the church. You'll hear people say, just, just so you understand, you'll hear people, you know, because I'm not going to be here for Q&A, so I'll ask my own Q&A. Pastor Paul, though, doesn't Jesus say the gate is narrow and few who enter through it? Yeah. So, number one, at that time, it was, there were very few. There were very few. The Christian faith at the time of Christ was the minority of the minorities. It started small. It was a mustard seed. But we should not assume that because at the time the gate was narrow, and by the way, the gate is still narrow because there's only one gate, So that's still the same, but few who enter into it, we don't make the assumption that that will always be the case, that as time goes on, more and more and more will enter through it because the mustard seed becomes what? Right. The leaven does what? Right. The little stream coming out of the temple in Ezekiel does what? 
They go on and on. I mean, it, just, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. They're just going, well, no, no, it stays small. That is, not, that is not the scriptural presentation of the kingdom of God. Somebody will go, but doesn't the world belong to the devil? And we don't have time to get into that. That could be its own conference. The world does not belong to the devil. But we do read in 1 John, for example, that the whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one. I don't doubt that. During the time of Christ, I would say that the earth was in a position of abject evil during the time of Christ. But that doesn't mean that it was going to remain that way. I'm going to read a verse to you in a minute that seems to indicate that the devil really took a hit. Matter of fact, I've already read one, right? That he made a public spectacle through the cross. So I don't think we should live under the assumption that if during the time of Christ the entire world lay under the sway of the wicked one, that it's always going to be that way. That, that the righteousness of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And by the way, how much water does cover the sea? All of it. All right, moving on. Because they realize, you know, there is some optimism in, you know, the, the scriptures. Gather out an elect body, the church. Let's get back, if we can put that back up because I didn't finish. Slide five again. The millennial age will be the dispensation of the spirit. Then, then the righteousness shall cover the earth as the waters cover the deep. Larkin then finishes all of this by quoting um, Isaiah 11.9, which we kind of talked a little bit about earlier. So we have this, you know, this idea that the righteousness of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea or cover the deep. And, um, and Larkin and Charles Ryrie, and who was another Dallas guy, and I have Ryrie's study Bible. It was my Bible. It's my, still my most dog-eared Bible. And when you, if you look at that, you're going, wow, this is pretty optimistic. The righteousness of God is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the deep. Larkin says, well, that's after the second coming. And Ryrie says the same thing. He's like, no, that's during the millennium. Now, I can't get into the millennium right now and what that means. I am on Sunday mornings putting together my who's who and what's what. But the millennium, and I'll agree with this, the millennium is where all the good things happen. The millennium is where all the good things happen. And I'll just give you a little sneak peek. I think we're in it now. I think the millennium is the period between the first and second advents of Christ. And let me give you what I'm going to read here is one of the reasons why I think that. Because that Isaiah passage is talking about some pretty good things, right? The righteousness of God is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. When is that going to happen? In the millennium. And I'm like, it is. And that started at the first advent of Christ. But Ryrie says, no, no, no. No, this happens after the second coming. This happens in the millennium. Now, you're going to hear this. If you ever, if you ever deign to have a discussion with your Christian friends on this, they're going to go, you're just not reading your Bible. You know the word you're going to hear? Literally. Okay, well, let me just tell you this. Ryrie makes that comment you know, from Isaiah. He goes, this is going to happen in the future millennium. Now, 
He says that on page 1030 of his study Bible. But there is no mention of a millennium until page 1919. So, so you got 889 pages between this is going to happen in the millennium and any mention of a millennium at all in the Bible. I don't know about you, that does not seem to be the natural reading of the text. That seems to me to be an eisegetic imposition upon the text, making the text mean what your preconceived convictions are making it mean. It is not the natural reading of Isaiah to somehow have a second coming show up in order for Jesus to finish what he did not finish on his first coming. Especially when just two chapters before, in Isaiah chapter 9, the well-known Christmas passage, slide 6. Now, we all are familiar with this, but let me point out something to you that maybe you hadn't looked for prior to this. For unto us a child is born. So let me ask a question. Is that first advent? (laughs) Yeah, right? I mean, they call it advent, right? I mean, you have your advent calendar, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. By the way, the position that is predominant today, they don't believe that Jesus is on the throne of David. That's a future thing. That comes after the second coming. But here, he's saying, the throne of David over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah doesn't record any intervening dispensation we went from we went from the child to the kingdom the throne of david moving forward and forward and forward all the way to chapter 11 where the righteousness of god will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea without one mention of the second coming i have to tell you i think there's a real problem here i want to read one more verse that gives me the feeling as I read my Bible that the coming of the Messiah is going to have global impact. And again, I could, I could pick a ton of them. Psalm 22, 27, and 28. You know Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins, right? Uh, it's where Jesus quotes when he's on the cross. It's a messianic psalm. Oh, Lord, why have you forsaken me? And so forth starts in Psalm 22. And it goes from the, the passion of the Christ to this. All the earth, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. 
for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. You, you can get as big as microscope out as you want and you can look at Psalm 22 and you're not going to see one reference to the second coming. Do I believe there's going to be a second coming? Absolutely. The physical return of Christ. And you know what that is? That's judgment day. That is judgment day. That is the resurrection. Together, the just and the unjust together. The sheep and the goat together. The wheat and the tares together. They're not separated the way the system I'm reading to you separates them in terms of different resurrections. This is what the Bible says is going to happen as a result of the cross of Christ. Psalm 22. You go right from the cross. I mean, Psalm 22 describes the cross of Christ more than any gospel. Every gospel, all you're going to read is, and they crucified him. It's in Psalm 22 where you read about them plucking his beard and you could see his bones. And it's a really graphic description. It's horrifying. But then it culminates in this victory. And here's what I think is one of the most dangerous aspects of all of this. Let me share with you a personal experience that I had when I was wrestling through this. And that is that I, like a lot of people, had this, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it was the way I was thinking. I had this fantasy land view of the, of the millennium. Like the millennium is going to be just like a, one of those places in Disneyland where you go and you're like, wow, this is it now. And the, you know, and the, the lion is going to lay down with the lamb and they're going to beat their, their plowshares, their hooks, you know, their swords into plowshares and all this great stuff. And I remember thinking while I was wrestling through this, there is no way on earth that what Jesus has done so far is sufficient to accomplish that. He really needs to come again in order to make that happen. I think most people think that way. Matter of fact, I'm going to read to you a quote in a minute here that's going to sound just like that. Yeah, great things are going to happen, but not until he comes again. When he comes again, then the great things will happen. Then he'll, he'll finish the job. And I remember, and you know me, I'm not a charismatic and I don't hear voices. But if I were a charismatic, and I did hear voices, I would say God spoke to me that day. And he said, why do you think that the cross is insufficient to accomplish all of these things? So I realized I had a low view of the cross. In one of the other debates we had here, and I wish I would have answered this kind of, I thought I answered it clearly, but maybe I didn't. And I was, you know, one of the, uh, in the Q&A afterward, a lady got up and she said, well, do you, you know, the Bible says, you know, and I'll read that in a second, the lion lays down with the lamb and, the, the, you know, the wolf. It's not really the lion and the lamb, but you get the idea. She goes, you know, the guy is debating, believes that in a future millennium that's actually going to happen. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb. And she was like, do you believe that? And I knew she was, had come with him. So this was to get me because I think she thought I was an all-millennial because the all-millennial kind of is like, well, that's a spiritual way to express, you know, the fact that there's going to be peace with God and this type of thing. And I'm like, as, as literal as he is in terms of what he thinks that's going to look like, I don't know how many lions have to lay down with how many lambs, right? 
because I've already seen that happen. I've seen lions and lambs lay down. I, I didn't see what happened right after, but I've seen them. <laughs> but as, as literal as he is taking it, I can take it that literally. But here's the difference. He thinks Jesus has to come again in order to accomplish that. I think what Jesus already did is sufficient to accomplish that. So you see how this kind of has this backdoor effect of the way we view the power of the cross itself. What is the foundation of our hope eschatologically in terms of the direction of history? It's the cross of Christ. And if you have a low view of the cross of Christ, you're going to have a low view of what's going to happen throughout the course of history. If you have a high view of what's going to happen to the course of history, you're kind of looking at going, what Jesus did on the cross changes everything. It changes everything. Slide 8, we read in Psalm 2, another passage. It's more along the lines of a warning. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. I mean, need I point out that because people will go, yeah, this is this is kind of eternity. This is spiritual. This and that. The passage says kings of the earth. The natural reading is that the kings of the earth should bow to the king of kings. And if they're not willing to bow to the king of kings, then what will happen to them is what we've been studying in the Revelation, and that Jesus will come. Not in terms of the second coming. He will come in judgment. If you will not defer to the king of kings, you will be deposed, kings. Your kingdom will last for a while, but he will dash you with a rod of iron. And there's any number of examples in the Old Testament where that happened, and I'm convinced that will continue to happen throughout the course of history. Not to labor this position, but I'm telling you, I found Lewis Perry Chafer's position, and he founded the most popular seminary in America. And I found his position disquieting when he wrote this, slide nine. Another error to be avoided in connection with the subject, is the supposition that the divine purpose in this age is the conversion of the world. It is true that the world will be converted, and there is yet to be a kingdom of righteousness in the earth. But according to the Bible, I always that just kind of gets me a little bit when they say that. According to your understanding of the Bible, Okay, but nonetheless, according to the Bible, that day of a transformed earth, so far from being the result of Christian service, is said to follow rather than precede the return of Christ, and is said to be made possible only by his personal presence and immediate power. There, there are things Jesus just left undone. He needs to come, and he needs to exercise his immediate power in order to transform the world. Yeah, the world's going to be transformed, but not as a result of the gospel, not as a result of the Holy Spirit 
filling people, not a result of people being converted, not a result of we see this kingdom growth taking place slowly but surely throughout the course of history. It is going to happen when Jesus comes again and sets things straight. Even though the Bible clearly states that when he comes again, he will not contend with sin. When Jesus comes again, the Bible teaches us that he will not contend with sin. And yet here it seems like he's got a lot of sin to contend with when he has to straighten things out by his personal presence and immediate power. I'm going to tell you, to me that seems patently unbiblical. Going back to whether or not the devil is the ruler of this age, look what John writes in John 12, 31 through 32. It's really Jesus speaking. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I don't have a slide for this, sorry. And, I, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Something very devastating happened to the devil when Jesus went to the cross. You know, Jesus made the statement in Matthew 12, 29. Interestingly enough, how can someone enter the strong man's house? Now, the strong man here, anybody know who the strong man is? It's the devil, right? How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus went on to explain that that's exactly what he was planning on doing. Right? Binding the strong man. So when did that happen? I'm going to read it. I'm going to jump way ahead in Revelation chapter 20 because it's the same root word for bind. Revelation 20, 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And what did he do? He bound him. For a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him that he might no longer deceive the nations. Jesus bound the strong man. Well, I'm out of time, but I want to finish with this one thought because I was quite moved when I read this in a periodical called the Millennium Clock. Because we um, we do have this very short-term thinking going on in the church. There's very much, you know, like, hey, we're gonna, the, end is, the end is near, it's going to happen soon, get people saved, get them raptured, you know, it's all just kind of like this quick, let's, let's not think long term. And again, you might think I'm overstating it, it I am not. That is, that is the methodology of so many people who view us as living in the last days. But we need to think long term. We need to consider our legacy. We need to consider our future, and not our future, but the future of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and on and on and on. Because during the watch of the people, when this theology took over, we are experiencing the negative results of their negligence. It's, it's hit us. The fire is no longer at our feet. The fire is on our backsides right now. And we're wondering, where did this come from? It came because we had a group of people 
who were like at the helm believing that it was God's will for the Christian faith to fail and weren't willing to think long term about their ministry. I picked this up and I read it and I thought we should be more like this. Slide 10. I think of the oak beams in the ceiling of College Hall at New College, Oxford. Last century, when the beams needed replacing, carpenters used oak trees that had been planted in 1386 when the dining hall was first built. The 14th century builder had planted the trees in anticipation of the time, hundreds of years in the future, when the beams would need replacing. Did the carpenters plant new trees to replace the beams again a few hundred years from now? We need to think long-term. We, we can't be thinking, well, you know, Leave it to Beaver was a lot better than Married with Children or whatever the show is now. I, I even know that's old, right? Whatever it is. So obviously... You know, I'm reading these, all these eschatology books, and it's like, obviously, things are getting worse. Obviously, it's God's plan. But just because it's worse in your lifetime doesn't mean that you sell your future. And a very infamous statement made by John Maynard Keynes, who was an economic advisor to um, FDR and the New Deal, and... Um, you know, fraction reserve banking and the economic system that we have today. He was kind of going, no, this is the way, financially, economically, this is the good direction. This will get us out of the depression. This will, and, and, and by the way, Keynes was an uh, outspoken homosexual with no children, even in the 40s. And the, econo- the, the economists of the time looked at it and they said, well, the thing is, Mr. Keynes, if this doesn't work out exactly the way that you're saying it's going to work out, we will bankrupt the future of this nation. And Keynes' infamous statement was, we'll all be dead by then. We can't think that way. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would inculcate and instill in our hearts what your plan is for history and help us, every one of us, to recognize the power of the cross in accomplishing what that plan is. Help us, Father, and not give in to those who would say that this world belongs to the devil. Father, it belongs to you. Help us to recognize the majesty of the fact that our Savior, he's prophet, he's priest, and he is currently the king of kings, governing and ruling, to whom we should ever bow, to whom even the kings of the earth should ever bow. And may that be the proclamation of the church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.